Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and if you've just clicked on this first episode, you're probably wondering what it's all about. Well, if you're interested in the Crusades, you've come to the right place because it will take you through the entire story of the Crusades, from their origins until the fall of the last Crusader state in 1291. Why the Byzantine bit? That's because I've written a book suggesting that Byzantium is often overlooked as both central to the origins of the Crusades and also to how they developed. Now, I'm recording this introduction about 10 months into the podcast because I thought it would be helpful for you if I explained very quickly how the podcast develops. So I originally only intended to make the first 20 episodes which are about the fall of Byzantium and how that caused the first crusade. The source material for that is my own book called The Byzantine World War, which was published in 2019, and you can find it on Amazon. To be honest, I really didn't expect a lot of interest in this fairly obscure bit of history, although I happen to think it's absolutely fascinating. And then I was really surprised and delighted that so many people said they liked it and wanted it to continue. So I decided to carry on and make it the whole history of the Crusades. Now, the later episodes that I'm still producing are more about the Crusaders than about the Byzantines, and the main source material for that is Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades, which is probably the most famous book ever written on the Crusades. Stephen Runciman died 20 years ago, but I was lucky enough to meet him when I was studying Byzantine history, and I think he had a wonderful ability to bring a subject to life, and I've adapted his great book for this podcast, cutting out some of the detail but keeping all the important stuff. Finally, let me just explain that what you're about to hear, as well as the next two episodes, are just an introduction. The script is something I presented at a history festival, so they're pretty short, and I recommend that you have a quick listen, and if you like it, then you've got a lot more episodes which go into a lot more detail. So, without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this, and let's return to my original recording, which starts on a day that changed the world. That day was the 15th of July, 1099, when the first Crusaders captured Jerusalem. It had been in Muslim hands for over 400 years. A Crusader army that had numbered to begin with up to 100,000, a huge size for the Middle Ages, had marched from Western Europe through Turkey and Syria to reach Jerusalem. Before then, there had been very little contact between Western Europe and the Middle East. But after the fall of Jerusalem, the world changed. Suddenly, European eyes were opened to new global horizons, and there was a rift created between Christianity and Islam that has lasted to some extent to this day. But the question I want to ask is, why did the First Crusade happen? And the answer is that its origins lie with an empire called Byzantium. Who were the Byzantines? Well, in fact, they were Romans. The name Byzantine has been made up by historians to describe the Eastern Roman Empire, which carried on after the fall of Rome. The Byzantine Empire not only survived the fall of Rome in the 5th century and the rise of Islam in the 7th, but by the 11th century, it was again the strongest power in Europe. It stretched from southern Italy to Armenia. It included many modern-day countries like Turkey, Greece and Bulgaria. And the capital of Byzantium was Constantinople, which is today, of course, Istanbul. Today, you can still see the massive walls built 1,500 years ago. These were game-changers in European history because they were so effective that they stopped both the Persians and Arabs from invading Europe. Constantinople wasn't just the largest city in Europe... 
for a thousand years, but it must have been a truly amazing place because it was literally unchanged from the ancient world. It had aqueducts, forums, long colonnaded streets, hundreds of statues from antiquity, as well as a vast hippodrome with capacity for 100,000 spectators, bigger even than Wembley in London. And its most impressive building was its great church called Hagia Sophia, which still stands today. It was the biggest building in Europe for a thousand years, and its dome was the largest dome in the world until St. Peter's in Rome was built in the 16th century. However, in the 11th century, things started to go wrong for the Byzantine Empire. It was attacked from all sides. In the east, there were the Seljuk Turks, From the north, there was another Turkish tribe called the Pechenegs. In the west, there were the Normans. Hearing about the Normans might surprise you because you probably think of them conquering England at this time in 1066. But the Normans were great adventurers and another group set up their own kingdom in Sicily and southern Italy. And you'll be hearing a lot more about them because they were very important in the First Crusade as well. But the biggest threat to the Byzantines was the Seljuk Turks. They were superb horsemen who the Byzantines said shot arrows from bows that were so powerful that one shot would pass clean through the body of horse or rider. And the Seljuk Turks were particularly dangerous because they were invading Anatolia, which was the heartland of the Byzantine Empire. Today, of course, Anatolia is modern Turkey. But a thousand years ago, there were no Turks there and it was as Greek as Greece. The Seljuks were also led by a very capable sultan called Alp Arslan, who was a particularly dangerous opponent. He was a very good general, and he'd united the Seljuk Turks into one massive empire that stretched from India to Syria. By the 1060s, the Seljuks had overrun Byzantine Armenia, and they were starting to raid into Anatolia. The real problem for the Byzantines was that their army had become too weak to stop them. This had happened because in the 11th century there was a series of emperors who weren't soldiers and who had run the army down because they were afraid of military rebellions that might overthrow them. One thing that they'd done in particular was to undermine the military aristocracy in Cappadocia, which had always been at the heart of the Byzantine army, a bit like the Prussians who were the leaders of the German army in the First World War. But this Cappadocian military aristocracy weren't completely Finnish. One of them was a very successful general who defeated the Pechenegg Turks in the Western Empire, fighting along the Danube. He was widely regarded as the empire's best general, and his name, Romanus Diogenes. Now, Romanus, in 1067, is deeply frustrated by the old emperor Constantine X and his inability to stop the Seljuk attacks in the east. Matters come to a head in 1067, when they sack the capital of Cappadocia, a city called Caesarea. It's a particularly brutal sacking. The Turks killed and enslaved the entire population. This is just too much for Romanus. So he leads a rebellion in the west. But it goes wrong. Some of his own officers betray him. He's arrested. He's taken to Constantinople to face trial and almost certain execution. But when he stands on trial before the senators, he so impresses them with his courage and honesty that they pardon him. When he's released, 
the people love him and he becomes a popular hero. Part of Romanus's attraction was not just that he was a successful general, but he was also tall, strong, dashing. He looked the part. And the people of Constantinople want him to lead the fight against the Turks. Now, the old emperor Constantine had died, and the empress, who was still relatively young, asked to see Romanus. And it was not long before she decided to marry him. We don't know whether it was out of love or for political reasons, but Romanus became emperor. And I think this must be one of the most remarkable turnaround stories in history, going from near execution to the most powerful position in the empire. So the big question is, can Romanus save Byzantium? First of all, he wastes no time. He recruits and trains a brand new army. And in 1068, he leads it to victory against the emir of Aleppo, who he defeats and he captures a major city in Syria called Hierapolis. However, the problem is that no matter how successful he is on the battlefield, he can't stop the Turks completely from raiding Anatolia. They can ride hundreds of miles in a few days and they can easily bypass Romanus's troops. And although he does hunt down and destroy a number of Turkish warbands, there are always others that get through and sack Byzantine cities. And in 1069, they sacked a great city called Iconium. Now, this does Romanus's reputation a lot of damage, and he knows that he has to win a major victory over the Seljuks to stop this raiding. And so in 1071, he sets out with a huge army. Contemporaries said it numbered hundreds of thousands, but it was probably about 40,000, which is still a very large army for this period. And he marches far into the east to Armenia, where he wants to recapture the key fortresses that the Seljuks have taken from the Byzantines along the frontier. That way he can stop them raiding. If they want to fight a major battle, he's well positioned to do that. Now, the Seljuk Sultan, Alp Arslan, is really more interested in fighting his main rivals in the Islamic world, who are called the Fatimids, the Fatimid Caliphate based in Egypt. But when he hears that Romanus is marching east with a large army, he decides he has no option but to meet him in battle. And he does this outside a fortress that Romanus has just recaptured from the Seljuks called Mansikert. And there takes place one of the most important and largest battles in the Middle Ages. It was called the Battle of Mansikert. I'm going to spend a bit of time on this battle because I think it was so significant. One of the interesting things about it is that the Byzantine army that Romanus took to Manticore was really the last Roman army. What I mean by this is that the Byzantines maintained the Romans' military traditions. Their armies were very disciplined. For example, they always built proper camps when they were on the march, and these were defended with palisades and moats. And many of the regiments, indeed, at Manticourt dated back to the late Roman period. On the day of the battle, Romanus divided his army into four units, the centre, the right and left wings, and the rearguard. And each of these was an independent battle group with both infantry and cavalry, so that they 
could be responsive to the way the Turks fought, which of course was highly mobile because the Turks were almost entirely cavalry. Now Romanus leads the biggest battle group, which is in the centre, and this works very well. The Turks retreat, there's a lot of skirmishing, but the Turks can't stop the Byzantines advancing, who cover about five miles and are basically winning the battle. But Romanus has made one critical mistake. He's given the rearguard to one of his political enemies. It's someone called Andronicus Ducus. Now, the Ducus family, the most powerful family in the empire, the previous emperor Constantine was a Ducus, and they hate Romanus. They think he's stolen the throne from them. So what Andronicus does is to commit one of the worst acts of treachery ever seen on a battlefield. He does this when Romanus calls the order to halt the army because it's already late afternoon and the army needs to return back to camp so as to avoid being surrounded. Up until then, of course, the Byzantines have advanced very successfully. The Seljuks have retreated. There's been a lot of skirmishing. There hasn't been a pitched battle. But Romanus is on good grounds to claim a minor victory. And he can, of course, carry on fighting the next day when the Seljuks may well actually uh, sue for peace instead. But the problem is that communication is one of the most difficult things for a medieval army. Obviously, they didn't have radios and phones. Sending messengers is the most reliable form of communication. But if there isn't time for that, then in the Byzantine army, the main method of communication was by using the battle standards. For example, the order to return to camp was given by reversing these tall battle standards that the troops carried into battle. And now the problem is that this just isn't a very effective signal, especially in the heat of battle. And when Romanus reverses the standards of his troops in the centre, the two wings aren't quite sure what's going on. Now it's in this situation that Andronicus sees a golden opportunity. What he does is to tell his troops that Romanus has been defeated and that everyone has to flee the field. He orders his own troops, the rear guard, to retreat as fast as they can. Now the right and left wings see this and they are confused. They don't know what's going on. Has Romanus been defeated or not? There's total confusion. Now from the Seljuk side, Alparslan has been watching the battle very closely from a hill. The Seljuks are the masters of opportunism, and the moment he sees the disorder within the Byzantine ranks, he orders an all-out attack. The Turks stop skirmishing and charge headlong into battle. They surround Romanus and the central battle group, which doesn't have time to retreat. The troops on the wings try to save him but they're prevented by the Seljuk. There's horrifically fierce fighting. Romanus has been leading his troops of course at the forefront for the whole of the battle and now he's surrounded fighting for survival. All the sources both Byzantine and Islamic say he fought like a lion. He kills many Turks himself but eventually in the late evening after several hours of desperate fighting his horse is killed. He's pretty badly wounded himself he can't even hold a sword and eventually he surrenders and this is the first time for 300 years that a byzantine emperor has been captured on the battlefield 
and the result was catastrophe for Byzantium. But it didn't collapse immediately. Romanus was actually freed by the Turks, and there was a civil war between him and the treacherous Ducas family. Romanus loses this war, not least because he doesn't have the troops available after Mansicurd. His army has been destroyed. And the Ducas family capture him, and they treat him much more brutally than the Turks did. They blind him in a way that the Byzantines were particularly fond of doing to political rivals, and it's done in such a bloodthirsty way that he dies very shortly from his wounds. Now, the problem for Byzantium is that it's lost its professional army at Mansikert. All of those regiments that could trace their uh, roots back to the late Roman period have been obliterated, and they simply can't create another professional army. Instead, they become reliant on mercenaries, and this stops them from ever again being a major military power. The other critical consequence of Mansikert is that the Byzantines lose Anatolia. Again, this doesn't happen immediately because the Seljuks focus on fighting the Fatimids in Syria and Egypt. But over the next 10 years after Mansikert, Turkish nomads effectively occupy almost all of Anatolia, so that by 1080, the inhabitants of Constantinople are listening in terror to the sound of Turkish drums beating from across the Bosphorus. In part two, I will look at how Byzantium appealed to the West to save it from the Turks and how this resulted in one of the most extraordinary events in history, the First Crusade. And if you'd like to learn more about Byzantium and its defeat by the Seljuk Turks, then my book called The Byzantine World War by me, Nick Holmes, goes into much greater detail and is available on Amazon and from most retailers. Thank you for listening.